0: The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. We celebrate Jesus' grace, and so when we hear this word that he has to the church in Thyatira, we find ourselves taken aback. A sentence that we do not expect to hear from Jesus as he speaks to them. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate. It almost doesn't matter what comes next in the sentence for us. Such a sentiment seems so scandalous and so unlike Jesus. I have this against you, that you tolerate. I I think all of us are familiar with religious people who might say something like that. Religious people who have taken the complexity of life and boiled it down to a few simple truths, and who have allowed those truths to comfort them as bulwarks against uh, ambiguity and, to a certain extent, against other people, as uh, they define themselves, who they are, as over and above other people, as a matter of exclusion. I know that I'm not like uh, these other people, and so I know what I am like. But that's a kind of an intolerant way uh, to live life. But we don't expect that kind of a way from Jesus. I mean, if anything, Jesus is kind of a champion of tolerance, is he not? I mean, Jesus is the one who wanders through his life, embracing the leper, having dinner with the uh, uh, the swine tax collector, you know, Zacchaeus. He's the one who when. The religious types want to throw stones at a woman who is really no worse than anybody else. Jesus says, let anyone who has uh, no sin throw the first stone and will offer no word of condemnation to this woman. And so why would he say to a church in a city, I have this against you that you tolerate? Well, we'll, let's look together at uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Uh, if you're visiting, you'll find a pew Bible there on page 996. And what we're doing is we go through these seven letters, to the seven churches of Asia Minors. We're reading them out loud. So I invite you to stand together. We see in chapter one that there is a uh, blessing pronounced on everybody who says these words, reads them to the congregation, who hears them and keeps them. And I want to read that blessing again for you uh, this morning. After we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you'll say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, servants, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod, as when clay pots are shattered. Even as I also received authority from my Father, to the one who conquers I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Please be seated. Well, if you're journeying through us, through these seven messages of the risen Jesus Christ, to seven cities and the churches within them, you begin to notice a pattern. And that is that the opening vision that John has of Jesus Christ finds its way into the introduction of each of these seven messages. So John, Jesus will take a, a bit and he'll, he'll, he'll hold that before the church. As an example of who Jesus Christ is, but more than that, as an indication of who he's calling them to become. We'll see as we get to it. Revelation chapter 3.12 says, I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. See, who God is, it's as though it's a, um, a seed or a DNA planted in the midst of the city in this church. That's going to begin to shape the whole city. And God's going to write his name on the city. Well, the image that we get of Jesus Christ that's taken from that open opening vision in chapter 1, here for the church in Thyatira, is this. We see it in verse 18. There are two things that Jesus wants this church to see in himself. The first is eyes like a flame of fire. And the second is feet like burnished bronze. And we're going to look at those. First, I'm going to give you some insight into what those would have symbolized for a first-century person. And then I'm going to talk about, what about our eyes? What does Jesus want us to see? And what about our feet? How are we to travel? First of all, what would these have symbolized for the first-century person? Well, in Syria, archaeologists have uncovered a temple... And ruins within that temple, we think probably of thousands of idols. And these idols are very plain slabs that are carved in the, sort of the figure of a person. And what's distinct about them, though, are very, very large eyes. Because these symbolize that the, that the God that is idolized is always watching. Eyes are, uh, uh, signify uh, perception, discernment, vigilance yet the psalmist will say of uh, these clay idols, idols have eyes, but they do not see. But the Lord, his eyes are always discerning uh, truth from falsehood, good from evil. The psalmist uh, goes on in Psalm 139 to say, you, your eyes beheld my unformed substance. And then he invites, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the entire earth to strengthen those whose heart is true. Now, human beings, we have our own eyes and faculty of discernment, don't we? There's an expression we find mostly in the Old Testament that suggests uh, the the limitations of our perception. It's the phrase, doing what is right in his own eyes. We see it in Deuteronomy, and then it begins to be repeated for for people who, who misvalue the goods of life who get it backwards or get it wrong, pursue things that are empty or vain uh, over things that are more valuable and and worthy of their uh, affections. Doing what is right in one's own eyes. The writer of Ecclesiastes will point this out. He says, The wise have eyes in their head, but fools walk in darkness. Dark eyes. Dim eyes. Jesus says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light. Uh, And God's word. This witness to Jesus Christ can enlighten our eyes. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes, we read in Psalm 19.8. So, burning eyes, to say that Jesus is burning eyes. One thing it says is also that he's alive, because dim eyes are a sign of someone's sickness. So bright eyes suggest Jesus is alive and well for this church. But also that he can cut through, he can see, he can discern what is really valuable in life. Flaming eyes signify discernment. Bronze feet. What do bronze feet suggest? Well, feet are used to demonstrate authority. When Joshua won a victory, he had his generals come out and put their feet on the necks of the generals that they had conquered. This is symbolic of their victory, that they have won In Zechariah 14, 3 and 4, we see a vision of the Lord's feet, which symbolize salvation. Zechariah says, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations that are opposed to God as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, the Lord's feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. To see the Lord's feet on the Mount of Olives is to know he wins. The Lord wins. Oftentimes, in fact, in Revelation chapter 1, when John sees Jesus, what does he do? immediately falls at his feet as though dead. We'll see a woman in the Gospel of Luke come to Jesus' feet and kiss his feet. This recognizes his mastery, that he is Lord. Bronze feet signify victory. Well, so this is what Thyatira is asked to observe in the Savior of their church. But but now what about our eyes and our feet? And my first point is that Jesus wants us to see the truth about him. He wants us to see who he is, to see the truth. What's going wrong here in Thyatira? About what, what is it exactly that Jesus is intolerant? Let's look again. Verse 20, he says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling. A lot of people think that maybe the problem is is moral. But I think Jesus doesn't place much emphasis here on morality or ethics. He does mention fornication and eating food to idols, but I think in a symbolic sense. Because notice the commendation in verse 19. Jesus says, hey, I know your works. I know your love, your affection. He commends them where he couldn't, the Ephesian church, remember? I know your faith. You've got a pretty good understanding of the gospel. I know your service, that you're ministering in the city in my name. And I know your patient endurance, that you hold up steadfastly the pressures of life. It doesn't seem to be a moral critique, but this I have against you. You tolerate a woman Jezebel. Now, nobody, no Jewish person would have ever named their daughter Jezebel. No Christian either. It's not her real name. This is an allusion to an Old Testament story. And she calls herself a prophet So she stands in the midst of God's people proclaiming something. And what she proclaims is double. He says, teaching and beguiling, teaching and deceiving my servants. So this is a woman or a group of people who stand within the congregation and they've got something else to say about the good news, something more to say. Paul makes an allusion, I mean, excuse me, Jesus makes an allusion to this later in the chapter in verse 24. Things, people who have learned what some call the deep things of Satan. As though they were saying, you know, you've heard the good news of Jesus, but now we're going to give you the graduate school version. We're going to give you the deeper truths. You know, the stuff that not everybody knows. Uh, possibly, we add some uh, new practices. Uh, maybe we've learned something from the uh, uh, the other religions, the other deities in Thyatira. And we'd like to apply that to our faith. Jesus plus. Jezebel was a ninth century. Uh, woman, and she was a very sharp, impressive woman in many respects. She's not known, by the way, for personal immorality, fornication or the the like. No, the critique of Jezebel in the Old Testament scriptures has to do with her influence on Israel. She's a Phoenician woman, marries King Ahab in the northern kingdom, probably uh, to seal a treaty between the Phoenicians on the coast and uh, Israel. But she brings with her her Canaanite influences. She's a worshiper of Baal and Asherah, and uh, she persecutes the prophets of the Lord, kills them. Um, And so her influence is to veer not only the king, but the people away from the truth of the Lord. That there is another salvation beside that which the Lord promises in his covenant to you. And so this is that which Jesus has very little uh, toleration. A tolerance is a virtue, unless it keeps us from seeing the truth. I noticed a couple of uh, bumper stickers recently. One says, uh, I may not agree with your bumper sticker, but I'd fight to the death for your right to stick it. That's That's a virtue of tolerance. I thought that was good. Another one I saw last year. I was driving around Los Angeles. It says, dilate your mind. Oh, that's profound. Dilate your mind. Yeah, kind of open it up a little bit. But the irony was that I saw that bumper sticker on a day when I had an eye appointment and I was driving on the eye exam. And I actually had my eyes dilated. And I could it was all I could do to get home. Because I, I, when you if you know, when you have your eyes dilated, you can't see a thing. Right? It was the best L.A. traffic I ever remember. You know? So. <laughs> 75 degrees, just a sunny uh, fuzz, you know. As I drove along there, there's a um, there's a childhood eye disease. It's common. It's called, uh, popularly, lazy eye, amblyopia. And what happens is the the um, the eyes don't coordinate, and so they present to the brain two different images. And and the brain can't process. Two different images, not able to bring them together. And so what it does is it basically shuts down input from one of the eyes. And what Jesus is saying, my one beef with you is your tolerance of two different visions of me. He wants us to be very, very clear about who he is. Stay focused on him. Otherwise, it's as though we can't see him at all our eyes. Jesus wants us to see the truth about him. And secondly, our feet. Jesus wants us to stand firmly on the truth about him, to stand on who he is. I would have thought that uh, multiculturalism and pluralism, uh, relatively recent phenomenon, things that owe their existence to the like of you know the telephone and television and the airplane and the computer, telecommunications, but it turns out that, that these things have existed for millennia, and what has caused them is not those technological developments, it's the technological development we call a city. You know, God is the inventor of the city. People stream into cities and have, as long as they've been around, as cities of refuge we find in the book of Genesis, places of safety where they can come and come together. So people, when they come into cities, are coming uh, for a new way of life, for economic safety, uh, for social safety. And when they do, they're adopting new lifestyles that are a place of change, and they live in very close proximity to one another. And so ideas flourish, especially new ideas, uh, in an urban environment. A lot of ideas uh, in the city. In fact, this is how Christianity spread. Notice that Christianity is mostly an urban phenomenon in the, in the New Testament. We're always writing to cities. So much so that uh, the word pagan that became used at some point to designate someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, you know what it means? It comes from the Latin paganus for countrymen. So, so many people in the cities were believers that... And there were so few... It's what we think that Christianity is sort of a rural phenomenon, but in fact it's an urban uh, phenomenon. But in time, Christianity would no longer be the new thing. And even Christians would look for other things, new understandings that might enrich uh, their life, make them more prosperous, help them to win. You walk through a city and, as John Bunyan says in Vanity Fair, there are these uh, stations that are saying bye. It's like a Pike Street market, buy me, buy me. There are many different versions of truth, many different notions that float around the city. You can stand at any intersection in Seattle and see two different directions. Which way should we walk? Proverbs 14.12 says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. You see, not all the ideas in a city are helpful. Some of them obscure the secret of life, the truth of life. Jeb Magruder, you know, is uh, in Nixon's cabinet, served time, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ late in life. And he said, you know, I climbed the ladder of success only to find out that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. How many of us will own the strategies of the city for success, whatever those narratives would be, and we adopt them as our ambition, as our hope for the future? Jesus is pretty intolerant of that. Thyatira knew a lot about uh, victory. Uh, As it turns out, we don't know a lot about Thyatira, but we know it has a lot of trade guilds, a lot of different deities, it was most famous in the ancient uh, Near East for its dye, purple. Uh, do you remember Lydia? was a, not coincidental that she was a trader in purple fabrics. Purple was the most expensive of all colored dyes in the ancient world. It came from a mollusk, and it took 8,000 mollusks to secrete enough purple to have one gram. So you can imagine how expensive that was. That's why it's exclusively used for kings and elites and cultic purposes. But in, in Thyatira, they had developed a technology that allowed them to extract this same color from the matter root. And so they were winners. They were doing well financially. And they catered to a pretty uh, auspicious clientele, a clientele of winners who traded with kings. And Jesus says here, the word for conquer, the one who conquers, is, means to win. It comes from the Greek word nikao, from Nike. The Greek goddess of victory and speed. There's no correlation, that I know, between Nike and feet. Uh, but if shoes helps you remember that, the way to win has to do with the feet of Jesus. And what we have to see in Jesus to win, two things really, who he is and what he does. Jesus reveals himself, his identity, to the church in Thyatira as the son of God in verse 18. Now, this is interesting. This is the only place we see the Son of God in the book of Revelation, this title for Jesus. He's alluding to Psalm 2, which is an ancient psalm that talks about the rivalry of kings, different authorities over the face of the earth that strive with one another for sovereignty. In the midst of that, we see a picture in the psalm of the Lord just laughing. Just laughing. How can you rival with kings, with with divinity, with God himself? And he says to his son, one who is begotten of him, in Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree of the Lord, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Serve the Lord with fear, he says to the nations, these kings, with trembling. Kiss his feet. Happy are all who take refuge in him what we must see about jesus christ is that he's not just a king he's not just a teacher he is god himself the one who created the cosmos who created life has stepped into time and space to to tell us what it means to have life to offer life uh, to us that's what jesus that's who jesus is very god of very god A lot of people say, ah, he's just one of many teachers. There's no credible religious or political teacher that's ever walked the face of the earth who has claimed to be God. Charles Manson claimed to be God, but nobody who lived with the kind of integrity or credibility that Jesus Christ did. In Mere Christianity, Cambridge Professor C.S. Lewis says, A man who is merely a man, but said the sort of things that Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic On a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Friends, in the competition of life, when you and I evaluate how will we win at this game, there is one and only one name, and it is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We must see that with our eyes. The other thing we must see is his works. The word works repeats itself through this passage several times. Sometimes it's translated doings. But the fundamental thing to notice is that there's a distinction between our works and Jesus' works. He commends our works in some respects in Thyatira. He's doing some good things. The works are even getting better with time. But Jesus says, if you're going to stand in the judgment on the basis of your works, you're in big trouble. Because all of us have clay feet. None of us is righteous as God is righteous and as his holiness requires he 's committed to eradicating evil and promoting good and you, have, you and I have embraced evil in our lives in verse twenty four Jesus says of those who teach this new teaching, if you believe that, if you want to live according to your own works, you may do so, but you will be judged according to your works he says uh, In verse 23, he says, I will give to each of you as your works deserve. On the other hand, you and I, friends, are invited to be judged by the works of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The Son of God has come to live a holy life that you and I could never live. And then he offers himself on the cross for the sins of the world. John 3.16 deserves the place that it has in our memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life, may win. Indeed, God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think it's an unfortunate translation in verse 26. The NRSV says to everyone who conquers or wins and continues to do my works. I think it should say what the NRS, uh, the RSV, the New American Standard Bible, the King James Version all say, and that is, "continues to keep my works." We're not asked to do Jesus's works, to die on the cross, to rise three days later. No, Jesus does that. We're asked to keep those works. Because our very life depends upon them. There's a special use of that word in in the book of Revelation. That is, to hold fast to a confession of faith against all the odds. Hold fast to the works of Jesus Christ. For these are your hope. In these you will find the success that you need for life. It's our feet We win when we walk with Jesus. Seeing who he is and holding fast to his works. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think of God. It's the most important thing. Jesus calls us to be tolerant people. Jesus is profoundly tolerant. He tolerates the rebellion of human beings. He tolerates the shame of the incarnation. He tolerates the violence of the cross. Even to the point of death. And so he calls us also to be tolerant. And yet there's one thing that Jesus Christ will not tolerate. And that is any threat to those for whom he died. Anything that stands between them and his grace. Any notion, however elegant and attractive it might be, that would obscure the teaching that he alone is God. And that we alone find life in his grace. Jesus is like a, a mother bear with her cub. I close with this thought. There was a, an old story. You may have heard of, a, of an admiral on a battleship at sea one foggy night. He sees a light, a little light, approaching just off his starboard bow. He speaks to his uh, signalman, asking him to flash a light in code, uh, Signal that we're on a collision course, asking the ship to change its direction. Advise them to change course 20 degrees. Signalman does this, and back comes a, re- a reply, a signal from this, this other light. Uh, it says, uh, I "Advise you to change your course 20 degrees." And the admiral signaled back, I, "I'm an admiral. Change your course 20 degrees." The reply comes back. I'm a seaman, second class, change your course, 20 degrees. By this time, the admiral is furious. He spits out a signal, I am a battleship, change your course immediately. The reply comes back, I am a lighthouse, change your course. (laughs) Friends, Jesus offers us an assurance at the end of this passage. He says, I have two things for you. I have authority, and he requotes Psalm 2. The same authority that the Father has given him, he gives us. And I have a star, morning star, Venus. It's a royal planet. So that you might know that in the darkness of night, when it doesn't seem like the cause of Jesus Christ is winning, when it doesn't seem like your life is victorious, you will know you'll reign with me. And the morning comes soon. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus Christ, that you are so jealous for our love, like a lover, that you will tolerate nothing that comes between us. Thank you that you are intolerant of every false idea that raises its head against your grace. Thank you that you have given us your grace so abundantly that we can have hope this day, no matter what is going on in our lives. And Lord, thank you that we can hold out that hope if we will but hold fast to the good news of Jesus Christ Carry it with us wherever we go this week. Hold it out for this city, Seattle. We pray for that. We pray that you would bless that with the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www. .upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.